First Peter 5, second half of 5 through verse 7. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We often um, judge uh, parents uh, by their children. Anyone ever been guilty of this? Yeah, yeah I, I definitely, I like to say I'm not, but I, I sort of look around and I'm like, wow, the way those kids love each other or don't um, seems to immediately go back to, so what are you doing wrong? And especially, I, I think you find, I've talked to my parents about this, you find it with young parents. Uh, I think younger parents uh, have a tendency because they, everything is like, it's like when the kid's in your belly, you're the, you're, you are achieving basically perfect parenthood, right? In other words, it's all theoretical. Even better yet, like, you're not pregnant yet. You guys are the best parents in the world. Uh, when we first planted the church, uh, my church planting, we had like a coach, part of our network, and he told us, um, he told us, right now, Andrew, this is in our planning stage. I'm like in California, big whiteboard with a bunch of other like planters and we're all like, we're gonna change the world. We got this whole map, here's what this thing's gonna look like and how we're gonna multiply and make disciples and care for the poor and all this stuff. We're laying the whole thing out and Jason gets up and just sober, those of you who know Jason, you know, just the most sobering, sobering response. He gets up and goes, hey everyone, right now your church plant is the best it will literally ever be. It will never be better than what it is right now because it's not real. You find with parents that are, are older, when they've been through it, and they realize, I'm probably gonna get this phrase wrong, it's uh, parents get way, um, you, you end up getting way too much credit um, and, and way too much blame. In other words, you, you don't really get to take all the credit, and you also really can't take all of the blame uh, for what happens. But we do this, we look at kids uh, and we go, man, I would never say no to my kid like that. Or I would never allow that. Or if my kid ever said that to me. And you never know really what's going on. Um, when a kid's so full of worry or fear, when a kid has ego issues, or when it's the reverse, right? You see like an older kid who's listening and taking care of their, their younger siblings. You're like, wow, what did you guys do to figure that out? Um, you begin to realize that parents... Um, that though parents have some serious sway, it's up to really the kid ultimately to respond to the true nature of the parent and their instructions. You can't take all the credit, you can't take all the blame. When a child of God is full of worry and fear, when a church is in disunity, when a church isn't loving one another and serving one another and laying down their life for one another, there's, I love this bird in the background. I feel like I'm preaching in the woods right now. <laughs> I gather around the, the stream. Um, often our worry and our pride reflects, our disunity reflects unfairly upon who God is like. We, we chose a song this morning to sing. We've been singing a lot lately because we felt like our community just needs to, to be reminded and hear declared over them. Like, this is who you are, a child of God. You're chosen, not forsaken. You are who God says you are. Those aren't just like made up lyrics. Those are pulled directly from scripture. In fact, the list is a lot longer than that song could allow for. This is who you are. And when you begin to realize who you are, it should shape not just who you are as an individual, but how you relate to one another. So this series that we're doing this summer, just for a month or so, five weeks, we're just trying to zoom in on a couple of the big categories of the one another's in the Bible. There's a lot of them, depending on how you count them. But it's love one another, care for one another, take care of one another's burdens, be in harmony with one another. About 15% of them have to do with humility. Last week, um, we kind of set the whole thing up with talking about what it means to really put wind in other people's sails, what it means to be a community um, that washes the feet of each other, that is humble toward one another, that literally sees itself, I think this is a C.S. Lewis line, like beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. In other words, when you, when you, when you recognize that, that everything you have is a gift, which is what we're gonna talk about today in a little more depth, 
and it should change how you respond. And I realize when it comes to dealing with other people's kids, like there's so much really that it reveals about you and your own judgmentalism. It reveals how much about you that you don't know what they're going through, right? This works for anybody. Like you don't know what that kid is like. You don't know what that kid's, what their propensities are. My brother has, has a, his oldest is a boy and my oldest is a girl. And, and the, the way this boy is plays into maybe some of the stereotypes you have of a young four-year-old boy. Maybe some of you are not trying to slot anyone into this is how all boys or all girls behave. Backpedal PC, make sure I'm adjusting right. Okay, got it. Now, what I say that and that this little boy Jacob is pumped full of testosterone and he, he tears things up, tears things up. He's, he's, he's ruthless. He's like a beast of, of, of a boy. Now, not that you can't have an oldest girl that's a beast of a girl. It just happens to be this way. And my, my, my oldest just happens to be like, no matter how much we're like, hey, we'll keep things a little gender neutral, not push the like princess thing, be really careful. It's, you know, just not like enforce this narrative. She's all pink, sparkles, princess. I, I, I don't know what happened, but it, she is just, it's amazing. It's beautiful and it's, just very her. I say that, and then I watch the two of them interact, and I go, man, I, uh, I would be, like, so much stronger. My brother knows this. We've talked about this than my brother is. I'd be so much harsher. He, though, has to deal with, like, there's this line in parenting, right? You, you should, um, you don't, don't choose every battle, but when you do choose a battle to fight, make sure you win. And so my brother has mastered in a lot of ways, I've noticed, realizing, like, I just can't choose every, every battle because he's just going to run around a lot and he just needs to move and it's not being disobedient. He just needs to move, right? So I, I say all that and, and that it, it causes us to begin to consider uh, some things about what it means to be in community with one another and how we think about God. I'm sitting, by the way, because what we're going to do is felt appropriate slash I just wanted to sit because I've been standing back there. And I'm going to walk through this verse line by line by line. This is just going to be one big Bible study. We're going to jump around to some different passages, but we're just going to walk slowly through this passage. So I'm going to be looking at my notes a little more than normal, and I felt like sitting would give me somehow more authority as we walk through this. (laughs) It's a tough time for humility. We're going to talk about humility again. Humble. Clothe yourselves in humility is what Peter says. David Brooks of the New York Times reflected on humility recently. I'm going to read you a long excerpt from this. On Sunday evenings, my local NPR station airs old radio programs. A few weeks ago, it broadcast the episode of the show Command Performance that aired the day World War II ended. Command Performance was a variety show that went out to the troops around the world. On VJ Day, Frank Sinatra appeared along with Marlene Dietrich, Jimmy Tarrant, a number of other people, Cary Grant. But the most striking feature of the show, so VJ Day is Victory Over Japan Day, which is a fascinating day, commentary for another day. The most striking feature of the show was its tone of self-effacement and humility. The Allies had, on that very day, completed one of the noblest military victories in the history of humanity, and yet there was no chest beating, nobody was erecting triumphal arches. Quote, all anybody can do is thank God it's over, Bing Crosby, the show's host, said. Quote, today our own deep down feeling is one of humility, he added. Burgess Meredith came out to read a passage from Ernie Pyle, the famous war correspondent. Pyle had been killed just a few months before, but he had written an article anticipating what a victory would mean. He wrote this, we won the war because our men are brave and because of many things, because of Russia, England, and China, and the passage of time and the gift of nature's material. We did not win it because destiny created us better than all others, other peoples. I hope that in victory we are more grateful than we are proud. This is starting to sound like a bygone era, you're right. In that article, it ends with, but the humility came under attack after ensuing decades. Self-effacement, humility, became identified with conformity and self-repression. A different ethos came to the foreground, which the sociologists call, quote, expressive individualism. Instead of being humble before God or history or moral salvation, could be found through intimate contact with oneself and by exposing the beauty, the power, and divinity in your own self. 
Everything that starts out as a cultural revolution ends up as capitalist routine. Before long, self-exposure and self-love became ways to win shares in the competition for attention. He gives examples. Muhammad Ali would tell all the cameras that he was the greatest of all time. Norman Mailer wrote a book called Advertisements for Myself. It's a great book. It's not satire. Today, immodesty is as ubiquitous as advertising. Sorry, immodesty. Uh, for the same reasons. Just scoop up just a few examples of self-indulgent expression from the past uh, few days. This article was written a few years ago. There is Joe Wilson using the house floor as his own crossfire. There is Kanye West grabbing the microphone from Taylor Swift at the MTV Video Music Awards to give us his opinion about the wrong that the wrong person won. There's Michael Jordan's egomaniacal and self-indulgent Hall of Fame speech. Don't watch that if you're a Jordan fan. It's the worst. I love Jordan. I hated watching that speech. Baseball and football games are now so routinely interrupted by self-celebration that you don't even notice it anymore. This isn't the death of civilization. It's just the culture in which we live. And from this vantage point, a display of mass modesty, like the kind represented, represented uh, on this uh, show that Brooks was commenting on, comes as something of a refreshing shock, a glimpse into another world. I don't have time to get into the whole history, but until this strange movement of followers of Jesus, no one really regarded humility as much as a virtue. And I mean that particularly within Rome. And Jesus ends up modeling it again and again. So here we go, line by line. Verse five. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves in humility. Humility is not low self-esteem. Here's one way to think about humility. But it is low uh, self-preoccupation. Humility is not like thinking like I'm nothing so much as it is not being so preoccupied with yourself. Last week we talked about how um, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. We kind of walk through that passage. This symbol of something that, that really a slave would do. Peter has this in mind as he's writing this passage. He tells his people that they should clothe themselves with the garment of humility. Now, the word he uses for clothe oneself is super unusual. Uh, and it's this word that is derived from two different words, which basically means anything tied on with a knot or like a, or in a, a garment specifically tied on with a knot. It's, it was always used for protective clothing. It was used uh, for like a pair of sleeves that would be drawn over your sleeves as like a robe tied behind your back. Um, it was always used as a slave's apron, a servant's apron. This is the word, it's a very specific word that was used. Peter may have had this scene in mind that we read last week. When Jesus gets up from the meal and he takes off his outer clothing and he wraps a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and washed and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This would have been the slave's apron. He washes their feet, has this thing around him and on top of his, his person, and then would dry it with this apron. It's interesting. Jesus puts on the slave's apron and undertook the humblest of all duties. The image that Paul is giving us, clothe yourselves with humility, is what Peter's really supposed to be doing, right? Which is discipling. Discipling is simply a way of saying, like, I'm telling other people to follow the leader. Which is a game as adults, as Christian adults, for those of you in the room who are followers of Jesus, we struggle with a bit. Follow the leader. We've talked about this before. The rules of follow the leader as a little kid are pretty simple. If I do this, you all do this. But God forbid Jesus says something like, love your enemies. And we go, yeah, but he doesn't really mean that in every case. Love your enemies. Yeah, that's weird. No, I, don't, I don't know about that. Entrust your tomorrow and other people to God. It doesn't mean that it's not hard. It's that we actually sometimes find ways out of it. Or we somehow use grace as something to dilute the teachings of Jesus instead of moving us into obedience. He says, put this over what you're wearing. Put this over what you're wearing. 
Some marks of humility is the willingness to perform the lowest and littlest services for Jesus' sake. It's a consciousness of our own ability to do anything apart from God. It's a willingness to just be ignored by others. And it's not self-hating or depreciation as much as it is self-forgetfulness. Hi, Rowan. That's my daughter right there. Hi, Rowan. <laughs> That's dad. Not so much self-hating or depreciation as self-forgetfulness. Being truly others-centered instead of self-centered. Got it? Next verse. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now Peter's quoting uh, Proverbs 3.34 here. Uh, here's this great quote from Hebert, a commentator who says this about the word opposes. That's pretty strong language. We just got done singing a lot of songs about how much God loves you. He forgives you no matter what. God opposes the proud. Okay, cool. Uh, opposes. Here's what Hebert says about this. The verb vividly pictures God as one who places himself in battle array against such individuals. This is a brutal word. Brutal word. Pride is one of the most detestable of sins. One writer says, yet it does find lodgment in earnest souls, though we often speak of pride as some lighter name. We call pride independence. We call pride self-reliance. Pride is love of self placed above love for God. Now, I realize this definition for those in the room that are not followers of Jesus is inadequate. But for us, through the lens of people who believe that at the center of the universe is, is this God of love, it is this God who created all things that he has made known to us in Jesus that, that, that we then are walking and following the path of Jesus, joining him and putting the world back together. That narrative may not apply to a lot of people who may be in the room today who are just exploring church for the first time or making sense of their spirituality, who have a lot of doubts about things. That's like, it's okay. So I realize this definition doesn't quite fit, but for us, the ultimate place of pride is a love of self placed above a love for God. And there's some signs of pride for the follower of Jesus. One is simply like a, a functional atheism. Like functional atheism and when we go for hours and days without deliberate reliance on God. If you're taking notes, write these down. Functional atheism are signs of pride in your own heart. Recognition of claim over his priority. Your home groups are gonna be going through this list this next week. Uh, being controlling. Even very godly, grace, peace-oriented Christians can become controlling. It happens subtly and is expressed in all kinds of ways, but reflects a fundamental assertion that things need to be done my way. Things need to be done my way is a manifestation of an internal pride. Three, these are just my, my, my takes on this, slash a few other people that I borrowed from. Being overly opinionated, you may have your own. Pride manifests itself in this way when we regard disagreement as a personal affront and refuse to accept advice or refuse to accept help. It's when we are quick to see faults in others and then point them out. Pride. This is a really cheery talk, I know. You can do it. God loves you. Okay, good. Let's keep going. Both those things are true. We're just not talking about that right now. <laughs> Being presumptuous, pride catches us when we believe we can do anything, solve any problem, be impervious to any sin. Pride is presumptuous. Pride is boastful, tends to take the form of selective updating and is the kind of thing that happens when in response to the question, like, I don't know, <laughs> how good are you doing? How's your job? Someone will respond with, I don't know, <laughs> exaggeration, being boastful. Being boastful, look how good I have it. Updating select facts. In church world, it's, I was talking about church planting before, it's like uh, I now coach a couple other plants. It's like, hi, how you doing? How are things going? We work really hard to not have a, a good measurement is not who shows up on a Sunday morning if we're really doing church well, but it is a metric we pay attention to. So I was asking, like, how are you doing? Are, you know, are people coming on? Is, that, is this becoming a good gathering? And they gave me the numbers of how many are coming. I went and visited the church, and it was like a quarter of that. I just thought, oh, wow, either came on a really bad Sunday, or you gave me like your Easter numbers. <laughs> Three of you care about that stuff. Anyway, <laughs> cool. All the church planners in the room are like, good example. Last one, being anxious. 
Pride can trip us up if we are over-concerned about the opinions of others. We might think that feeling low about ourselves means pride isn't the problem, but it very well could be. This is why some, sometimes counseling techniques aimed at raising your self-esteem backfire. The result is simply to reinforce your own pride and you don't fix the problem of your soul by loving yourself more, but by loving God more. God opposes a battle array. He opposes the proud. God opposes something that takes his place. God, we're told in scripture, is like a jealous lover. God opposes the things that would rob us life. If you've ever loved somebody and you've seen them make awful choices, if you've ever like had a child or a cousin or nephew and you've seen them go off the rails and you're like opposing everything that they do, you wouldn't say it's because you're just angry at them. What? You would say what? It's because you, you love them. Stop doing that thing. It's killing you. God opposes that which would take its place, not because God has some like ego problem. God, God doesn't seem to have an ego problem. It's because God's not saying, no, 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 trust me. Trust me. My oldest daughter is really into saying why recently. She's, she's got on that why train and have kids. Why? Why? Hey, I really would like you to do that. So I sat her down the other day because I never want to just be the, just because I told you so, and then walk away. I've never done that in my life. Uh, <laughs> But I've tried to help her. Like there are times to explain things. And then there are other times I just need you to trust me. So I explained that to her and tried. And so I remind her now when she's saying why, why, why. And I don't have the bandwidth time. She doesn't have the intellectual capacity even to understand why I'm telling her to not do that thing. Hey, hey, remember we talked about trust. Trust that daddy and mommy love you. And we know what's best for you. Now, obviously, in brackets, that's like most of the time. And as she gets older, we'll know less and less what's best for her. But right now, it works. I think this is this has helpful when we think of what God, how God opposes the proud. A lot of commentators point out that Peter has something else in mind as he's talking about this passage, about what God's posture towards why he opposes the proud. Deuteronomy 8. Verses 11 to 19, if you have your Bibles with you. I don't have it on the screen. I apologize. Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 19, or you can just listen. This is God talking to the Jews. He has just delivered the Jewish people, this tribe, out of slavery and bondage and is about to bring them to the promised land, but he doesn't just bring them right in. He brings them into the wilderness to teach them, to humble them, to test them, And he gives them these warnings. And here's one section. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build sweet houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, when you get the house and you get the car and you get that job and you're winning at your career, when that stuff happens, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's why oftentimes we return back to amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's why we circle back to our confession assurance. That's why we take communion every single week because we have to remember we have been saved, rescued, and set free. He goes on. He begins to explain what he did for these first people. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness. So he brought you into the wilderness to test you, to humble you, that it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Look, I picked myself up out of my bootstraps. I'm the one who did the hard work. I'm the one who put myself through college. You don't know what I had to do. This was my work and my sweat. And he goes, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who even gives you the ability to produce wealth. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Most rabbis point out, this isn't like he's like, oh, then if you do this, I'm gonna uh, zap. 
he's making an observation. This is when God's wrath is described most times in the Bible, it is, it is um, a, a, an issue of consequence. I, I'm not gonna save you from that because you don't want me to save you. God opposes the proud. I can't do anything about that. So you're gonna be destroyed. Like, like I, you're gonna experience the consequences of your actions in a way because you don't want my help. Humility keeps us not just rejecting God's authority, but also from rejecting God's, I'm sorry, pride keeps us not just from rejecting God's authority, but from rejecting God's provision. God opposes the proud not simply because pride says no to God's rule, but because it says no to God's providing for us. The two are always linked. Theologian and philosopher Ravi Zacharias suggests this. He says, quote, when we sin and push God away, God indeed grieves, not because he has lost something, but because we have lost something. That's good, right? When we sin and push God away, God does grieve, not because he's lost something, but because we have. Still with me? Halfway through the verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do I have that verse up on the screen? Yeah. So I want you to do something for me, um, Pat. I want you to edit that slide in a moment. I love the swivel chair. I feel like it's like Inspector Gadget or X-Men or something like that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. The NIV, the New International Version, puts a period right here. That's not wrong. Some very intelligent, brilliant people put this together. Almost every other translation, though, puts a comma there. Can you put a comma there after time, in due time? It's not wrong to have the period there, but it actually messes a bit when you go back and you look at the Greek about what's really happening in the text. Give me that comma, Pat. You got that? That's all right. Just pretend there's a comma there, then. Commas are hard. <laughs> you got it? Yeah. Okay. Now you got to make that. Well done, Pat. Pat Brown, everybody. Well done. <laughs> so here's the deal for those English majors. This is a subordinate clause. Yeah, I had to look it up too. Humble yourselves, dot, 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 casting your cares on him. It suggests that casting your anxieties on God, follow this, is an expression of humility. So it's like saying, eat politely, chewing with your mouth shut. Drive carefully, keep your eyes open. Be generous, invite somebody over for dinner. Humble yourselves, dot, 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 casting your anxieties on God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This means, if this is accurate, that one hindrance... One thing that gets in the way of you going, I've got all this care, you take it, God, is pride. One hindrance to being able to do this is pride. Which means undue worry about your future is probably a form of what? Worrying about your future apparently may be linked to your own pride. In other words, humble yourselves. Don't cast your anxiety on yourself. It's almost like you're just saying, like, I got it, God. I got it, I got it, I got it. The whole future thing, I got it. Yeah, I know, I know, Castle, you take care of the lilies of the field and the birds in the air. The cool, cool, I, I, got, I got it. We're going to get to another analogy in a minute. But it's like there's all these passages about when people sit in God's throne, God's chair. It's almost like this is God's proper place. I have my chair, and in right relation to God, things go really well. It's like, I, I, no, God, I, let me, can I just sit in the, can I sit in the big chair for a minute? Like you get the throne and the angels and everything. Like you have this, this image of God making sense of the world and his, the mystery of his sovereignty and providence and care. And you're just like, ah, uh, yeah, 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 God, just one, one second. I'm just thinking about my future. I'm thinking about my job. I got this big, okay, you can, no. I'm going through a hard time. You can take the throne. He broke up with me. You can take the throne. I don't know what to do. 
on my future, on my job, my career, my life. Okay, hold on one second. I'm good. I'm back. The opposite would be be prideful, worry more. Stop holding on to that which is for God to help you, which is your future. Stop trying. This we're gonna we're gonna tie this into other people in a moment. Stop trying to control other people. Clothe yourselves in humility. Regard others better than yourselves. Peter's letting us know that it is a proud presumption to take things into our own worry and care about things that God has promised to take care of. You hearing me? The key to understand what God has promised to take care of then is in his mighty hand comment. The Christians must humble themselves under his mighty hand. The phrase mighty hand is this common phrase in the Old Testament. It's most often used in connection with the deliverance which God brought for his people when he brought them out of Egypt. Those of you unfamiliar with the scriptures, pretty central story. Almost difficult to understand the teachings of Jesus without understanding this story. God rescues these people out of Egypt. In Exodus 13, 9, with a strong hand, said Moses, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 3, 24, thou hast only begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. Deuteronomy 9, 26, God has brought his people forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The idea is that God's mighty hand is on the destiny of his people if they will humbly and faithfully accept his guidance and provision and trust him. It's just provision and his care. Matthew 6, 31, Jesus says it like this. So do not worry, saying, what are we going to eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? Pagans, they run around after all these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. But sit back and do nothing and God will take care of it. No, what does it say there? But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. In other words, when we don't, when we actually cast our big worries and we let them go, we're then free to pick up the thing that God has for us. I have not been a pastor long, and I'm not that old. But I have seen time and again people miss their calling miss the thing happening in the moment because they're preoccupied with a bunch of stuff that they could just let go to God. I'm gonna entrust you with this and pick up the thing that you have laid before me. And oftentimes they're not even asking the question. We're not even asking the question of God, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom and then all this other stuff will be added unto you. There's a macro calling above whatever your call is. Whether your call is vocational or not called to be a stay-at-home parent. I'm called to be an engineer. I'm called to care for the poor here. I'm called to go and do this. I'm called to be a dancer. I'm called to go down the line. Whatever you have the sense that I'm on this earth to do, at least for right now, there's a macro calling and we go, I'm going to seek first the kingdom and then these other things will begin to make sense. When we begin to seek first the way of heaven, we actually seek that first. Not just be a nice person, sure but to actually seek God's call and what he's invited you to be a part of and to join him in this great story of putting the things in the world back together, it begins to readjust anything else. And so then the cares that come up while we're doing that, cast them upon him and we'll be free. We'll be free to pick up the things that God has for us. Lastly in this section, casting. Casting is an energetic word. He did not say, come and lay all your care upon him. The idea is to throw it away from you. Charles Spurgeon has this awesome riff on casting. He says this, this work of casting can be so difficult that we need to use two hands to do it. The hand of prayer and the hand of faith. Prayer tells God what the care is and, and asks God for help, while faith believes that God can and will do it. Prayer spreads the letter of trouble and grief before the Lord and opens ale its budget. And, when, and then faith cries, I believe that God cares and cares for me. I believe that he will bring me out of my distress. It goes on from there. This is epic. Like, just cast it. You can just get the energy of Spurgeon talking about this. He's trying to get at all of the energy and emotion and the word that's used in the text. Let it go because he cares for you. 
Look at their best moments. The religions of ancient Greek culture could imagine a God who was good, but they could never come to a place where they believed that God cared. The God of the Bible, the God who's there, is a God who says he cares for you. Is the belief that God cares that marks off Christianity from other systems of belief. They're either indifferent or they're about what you need to do to make God even look toward you and have favor with you. So to sum up, casting your cares on God is about entrusting your whole self to the one who says you are known and loved. The one who is faithful and the one who is true. So, humbling yourselves before the Lord, and here's where I want to end this, is all about knowing your place. And here is how this ties together with how we love and serve one another. It's about knowing your seat. Ezekiel 28, I just kind of referenced this a moment ago. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God and in the heart of the seas. There's a lot happening in this passage, but you again have this image of a chair. And I've talked about this before. We've opened our worship gatherings often with this image, right? In Revelation 5, you get a picture of like what's happening in the world. It's this, I don't know how much of it is literal, how much of it is poetic, but it's this picture of then I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. So John is saying, I have this image of God, of Jesus on the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. And then I looked again, and 10,000 times, 10,000. It's like all of a sudden the lights are going on. What you thought was a small room is actually an amphitheater, a stadium. They encircled the throne in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, I don't know that, and on the sea and all that is in them saying, worthy is the lamb. This is apparently what we all, or many of us believe in general, even if you would say you are spiritual and not religious, is that there is something other than at the center of everything. And what happens with pride, again, is that we want God's seat. As what pride does is it makes our world smaller and smaller and makes everything about us. It shrinks the room because not everybody's praising you. There's this big world and this big thing happening in the world and you make it all about you. Isaiah 43 says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There are these moments when we find out what's really in our heart, right? Moments when someone else gets credit for something. I always love when we have guest preachers come because the feedback is always, oh my gosh, I've never heard that before. I'm like, I spoke on that like 16 times in the last year. Oh, they're so good. They were just so humble and honest and open. And so, gosh, am I not humble and honest and open? Oh my gosh, is this a reflection of, right? I didn't realize any of that junk was in there. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my, this, you don't realize what's in there. <laughs> you don't realize what's in there. When Isaiah says, I formed you for my glory, that's why I made you. We have these moments where we have to ask, is it about my glory or is it about God's? It's not my glory. When pride is at work, we want the credit. God gets the glory when we live the way we are created to live. God gets the glory. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If I want some of the glory that is headed to God, I'm robbing God. When I have pride, I'm fighting with God for this chair. I'm pulling the glory away from God. I, I'm saying that there's not a proper order to the world. A lot of you went, mm, when I was reading Deuteronomy, right? When he says, even the ability to give, to, to, even the ability to make any wealth, that's God's. They go, mm, if that's difficult. But to live your life with that kind of response, look, everything's a gift. 
to live your life in such a way where you go, yeah, everything's a gift. Can you see, even if you're here, you're like a staunch atheist. You're like, all this stuff, God, devil, angels, I, and I'm not even following you, Andrew. But that, to live every moment as if life were a gift, there's something true about that. So as followers of Jesus, we're simply saying, what if it's really true? It's not just a game you play and a meditation and a mantra in your head. What if it's actually true? And that's where the power is. So, to close, you can see how pride ends up resenting. I wish, if you wish you were in God's seat, you somehow begin to resent God. I'm robbing, you're robbing God. You somehow begin to resent him. And so when we begin to resent how God made things, we begin to resent how God made others. We say things like, she's thinner, and I don't like that. We meet them, and we ask how smart they are. We're sizing them up. And I never ask, like, are we going to be friends? Are you, like, on a level? Do I want to be your friend because you're pretty cool? You seem to be beneath me. Yeah, let's probably not going to be friends. Am I above you or below you? Subconscious checklists on where you rank with that person. They have a better job, smarter, and more security. I saw the car that they drove out of the mall with. When we begin to resent our chair and God's chair, we naturally begin to resent other people's chairs. You following me? You begin to resent, like, like I, I, I made them for their glory. You begin to resent God's blessing on others. You can't get excited for people. You resent that God formed them for his glory. You're not free. You're endlessly ranking. You're subconsciously sizing people up. And all this goes back to wanting to be at the center of the universe. If I were just like that, if I were just like her, if I were just like him. So we begin to oppose God when we are prideful toward others. When we focus on what God has given other people we become more resentful and more ungrateful. When pride gets a hold of us, we always feel like we've been wronged. We're easily offended. We're easily angered. It's linked to, I don't like my chair. I don't like my chair. I don't like my chair. And so Romans 12, one of the humility one another's, says this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. It's brilliant. It's br Do you catch the brilliance of this? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. He links harmony with one another, humility toward one another with pride. If you attempt to live in harmony with a person, like even somebody who's better off, cooler than you, has more, like, like they've done things to you, then I can't, like, live in, I can't live in harmony with them if, if I'm filled with pride. It's not like don't have pride. Like just to say to you, white knuckle it. Like don't have pride, stop having pride. Right? Don't walk away from this sermon going, cool, I have pride issues. I already knew that. Thanks for 45 minutes of you telling me. I already knew that. I should work on that. He replaces it. He says, when, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. When you begin to clothe yourself in humility, put on the slaves to the servant's apron. Put on the apron. Wash each other's feet. Live in harmony. It begins to push what out? pride out. We always want to flip it. Be less prideful and we'll start to live in harmony. Of course that works. But you got to understand, beginning to practice humility. Put on the apron. Hashtag put on the apron. It will begin. Begin to live in harmony with one another. It will begin to push pride out. Hanging out with a bunch of other people's kids. Realizing this is my problem that I'm getting so worked up about this thing. All of a sudden what begins to unlock in your heart is all that pride begins to get pushed out and you are free just to bless somebody else's kids even if you don't like how they parent them. I spent the weekend with a bunch of really good friends and all their kids were around. I just feel like I need to give a preface. This is not about that interchange really quick. Okay, it was great. It was a great weekend. <laughs> The goal is to live in harmony with others. It will push pride out. This is brilliant. So, so many of the one another's are about humility and harmony and practicing a posture that pushes pride out of your life. I keep saying I'm finished, but I got one more thing I got to say. You can invite the band up. At this, this is in Job, 
1 verse 20. Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He had everything that's gone wrong to Job has happened in the world. This is the worst. He's in the worst situation ever. He fell to the ground in worship and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Folks, this is a spiritual practice that you can, you can take on. This is something that's been important to me. I was born naked. Say it with me. I was born naked. I was born naked. Wow. Revelation. I don't, I don't deserve anything. Where do you get off with entitlement? Where do I get off with entitlement? Entitled to what? Even the very ability to be doing all right. I was born naked. You were given a body? Gift. You're breathing right now? Gift. How you doing? Sun and the moon's out? Gift. Fans aren't on? Not gift. <laughs> I earned stuff. I earned all this. Do we even have the ability to do that? Gift. Imagine if we could play that tape. Imagine what our sense of gratefulness and awe would be like if we just realized everything's a gift. Been saved by grace through what? You've been saved by grace through faith. Faith is like believing that I've been saved by grace. You've been saved by grace through what? Just, I, I trust that that's, that's true. I have faith that that's true. That's the beginning of the Christian walk. So I have a choice. I can live with a profound sense of I'm owed and I deserve better. Or I can begin with I was born with no clothes on. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's so funny. And ever since, it's been gift. We're told in Genesis 12, we're called to be a blessing to the world. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Want to kill your pride? Love others, bless others, be a blessing machine. You want to crush your pride? Start blessing people even when you don't want to. Oh, dude, it will wreck you. It will be so hard at first, and then you will just feel the pride slowly beginning to push out of you. You will say, God, get back in the chair. I like my chair. Thank you. I get along with everyone else. There's a lot of clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. A community is really humble toward one another when everybody is in their, their chair. This is what God's given me. I was born naked. You were born naked. Beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. You saved by the grace of God? Yeah, I'm saved by the grace of God. You got a lot of quirks and you're super annoying. I'm going to clothe myself in humility and serve you. Because, you know, I probably got some quirks and I'm pretty annoying too. Right? Clothe yourselves in humility. Cast your cares upon him. Know your place. This is why we're here. The answer to pride is understanding that there are these chairs around the throne and each of us have our own share and our own place in this epic story. In the message, this is this uh, very colloquial translation. The writer Eugene Peterson translates verses six to seven in this way. So be content with who you are. Don't put on airs. God's strong hand is on you. He'll promote you at the right time. Just live carefree for God. He is most careful with you. Be content. It's funny how he translates it this way. Just be, be content. Here you are. Lord, as we come to the table and close our time together, we, um, man, Lord, we are thankful we are thankful, Lord, today that we have all of the strength and resources and provision we need to live lives of humility, to be people with the prayers, mantras in the back of our heads saying, I was born naked. It's all a gift. I can take these hardships because I've picked up the things, Lord, that God, you've given me. I can cast my burdens and my cares upon you. Lord, there are those in this room that feel like you don't know, though, what I'm going through right now. I'm at the lowest I've ever been. I know for a fact there's some folks, can I get amen, some folks in this room that are like, I am at the lowest I've ever been. 
pray, Lord, for one, the faith and the courage to be able to entrust their circumstances to you, to lean not on their own understanding and their own power. And I pray, Lord, also that the way in which you also provide is through the humility and care and blessing of others. And so I pray that those in this room that are hurting today would receive the gift of blessing from others in this room who need to practice, who aren't humbled themselves and need to practice some humility by letting some resources go and letting a bedroom go and letting, uh, (laughs) helping someone find a job and, and whatever that may be. That this would be a community where we are humble toward one another and thus are unified with one another moving closer and closer to what it means to truly be a family. God, I pray for our home groups, places where church gets lived out in, in, in a lot of more richer ways in some ways. Lord, I pray for our friend groups, Lord, that we, that we have, that their humility would abound. A laying down of our ego would abound, Lord, because we, we know that, Lord, you... You can take our cares. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, we prepare to, to, to sing. To sing and to eat of your great love for us. You laid down your life for us. You showed us the path of servanthood and of sacrificial love. And so as we sing of it, as we eat of it, God, I pray that your spirit would descend and invigorate us, inspire us. I pray folks have things they need to like write down and capture right now, disciplines they need to enact right now. I, I pray, Lord, that that would just happen, that you would move mightily in our midst in our last few minutes together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to come up. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the bread represents Christ's body broken, his blood, it, the, the cup, his blood poured out. It's a sacred meal that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. You'll have a propensity to forget your story, forget the gift of God's grace. So come forward and take and eat. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, um, I encourage you to take time to, to pray, to sit. I mean, the table is, is open to you, but I pray that this maybe is a moment of deeper reflection on, on, on the grace and unmerited favor of God. If you want to be prayed for, if something came up, maybe you need somebody to just pray over your pride. I want to invite you to line up in this line, in the line to the left, and there's some folks over here who would just love to pray for you. Come and sit. You don't have to say anything, but come and just receive blessing. So we have a few minutes left together. Let's make this time uh, an expectant time of faith. So come forward as you feel led.